Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beat Midrash. This year, each week, we will hear a Devar Torah on the Parsha from Rabbi David Kasher. Let's listen. My mother tongue was no tongue at all, but a pair of hands. My parents were both deaf, so my first language was American Sign Language. I didn't think about it much at the time. When you're a kid, your parents are just your parents, and your life is just your life. It's only in retrospect that I've come to appreciate how profoundly the experience of growing up in a deaf family and spending my early years signing as well as speaking has shaped my relationship to language in general. So when I came upon a deaf character in the Torah, of course I took notice. Well, to be more precise, the character is in the Torah, but his deafness we learn from a wild story in the Talmud. How the Talmud arrived at that connection is a wild story of its own. As the book of Genesis comes toward its end, Yaakov's sons all gather around his bed to receive one last blessing. When he finishes blessing them all, he announces that he's about to die and adjures his children to bury him with his ancestors in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. Avraham purchased that cave from Ephron the Hittite in order to bury Sarah there. Over the years, the cave became the family burial plot, as Yaakov details for us. There Avraham and his wife Sarah were buried, there Yitzchak and his wife Rivka were buried, and there I buried Leah. Now that Yaakov is ready for his own death, he wants to join his wife, his parents, and his grandparents there in the cave. So, the last chapter of Genesis sees all of Yaakov's descendants, who've just come down from the land of Canaan to Egypt, now traveling back up to bury their patriarch. But, according to an extended Agadah in Masechet Sotah, when they arrive at the cave, they run into a problem. Yaakov's twin brother, an arch-nemesis, is standing there at the entrance, blocking their path. He indicates that he will not allow them to bury Yaakov there and makes a claim on the burial rites for himself. It is in Kiryat Arba, the town of four, so there should be four pairs. Adam and Chava, Avraham and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka. Yaakov already buried Leah in his portion and what remains belongs to me. They replied to him, you sold it. He said to them, granted that I sold my birthright, but... I did not sell my basic rights as an heir. Esav's argument seems to be that this is a cave for pairs. Machpelah means doubling. In the town of Arba, which means four, so four pairs makes eight spots total and seven of them are already taken. Yaakov has used up his spot by burying Leah there, and so the remaining space belongs to Esav. There's some contention over this claim since, after all, Esav sold his birthright, but Esav refuses to budge. And it is at this point that we are introduced to the deaf member of the family. Among those present was Chushim, son of Dan, who could not hear. So he asked them, what's happening? They said to him, Esav is preventing the burial until Naphtali returns with a bill of sale from the land of Egypt. He retorted, is my grandfather to lie there in disgrace until Naphtali returns from the land of Egypt? So he took a club and struck Esav on the head so that his eyes popped out and fell and rolled onto Yaakov's lap. Yaakov opened his eyes and smiled. 
And this is like what is written, the righteous will rejoice when he sees vengeance. Chushim, at first, cannot understand what is happening, but when he realizes Esav is blocking the burial of his grandfather, he's outraged. He leaps into action and does away with Esav in gruesome fashion. The burial proceeds as planned, and Chushim, the deaf grandson, is the hero of the family that day. But who was Chushim? Where did our rabbis find this character, and how do they know he was deaf? The story begins with a very unusual verse in Parshat Vayigash. As Yaakov travels down to Egypt, the Torah gives us a list of everyone in the clan. All of his sons are named, and then their children are listed. So, the children of Ruvain, and a list. The children of Shimon, and a list. The children of Levi, and a list. But when we arrive at Dan, the list looks like it has been truncated. Uvne Dan, Chushim. And the children of Dan were Chushim. The grammar of this short verse is odd. It records the children of Dan, but there seems to be only one child mentioned. Why doesn't it say the child of Dan was Chushim? Then again, Chushim, with the im ending, looks like a plural word. Was there more than one Chush? This ambiguity leads to a series of speculations as to how many children Dan really had. The Ibn Ezra offers a tragic possibility. It's possible that there were two and one of them died. And though the verse does not mention him, this is the language style of the Torah, to use the word children anyway. So perhaps Dan had twins and one did not make it, and in memory of that original family, the verse uses children. But another opinion in the Talmud understands the verse to mean just the opposite. Perhaps it is like what is taught in the house of Chizkia, that there were many children, kachushim, like bundles of reeds. Maybe we should read the plural of children and the plural-sounding name, chushim, as an indication that Dan had not just one child, but a large number of children. In fact, the tribe of Dan one day becomes the second most populous tribe in Israel, so there's some reason to suspect that this tribe must have been multiplying rapidly all along. To all the confusion that comes from the plural grammar of the verse, we can add another textual oddity that comes when Dan's children are again named in a census in the book of Numbers. Elevne Dan, these are the descendants of Dan by their clans, Lishucham, Mishpachat Shuchami, of Shucham, the clan of the Shuchamites. Those are the clans of Dan by their clans. Again, only one name listed in the children of Dan, but now it's a different name, Shucham. But even stranger, the new name shares all the same consonant letters as Chushim, Shucham, Chushim. It's as if Chushim, who already had an indeterminate identity, has now been jumbled up and turned into someone else. Rashi and Ibn Ezra both presume that they're the same person and tell us explicitly, this is Chushim. But no one seems to know why the letters would have been scrambled. All kinds of textual vagaries surround the figure of Chushim. But how does all that lead our rabbis to suggest that he was deaf? What was the Midrashic move that took them there? 
Rabbi Shmuel Idols, the Marsha, gives a brilliant explanation, the more so because it's founded on a clue that's been right in front of us all along. He reminds us that the Talmud story of Chushim ended with a quote from Psalm 58. The righteous will rejoice when they see vengeance. We might have thought that was just a rhetorical flourish. But the reference is quite precise, the Marsha explains. Chushim ben Dan. This is like what is written, the righteous will rejoice when they see. It seems that this is all drawn out from that psalm, which says, in verse 4, the wicked have been estranged from birth. That's Esav, who the Midrash says tried to break out of the womb in order to follow idolatry. The liars go astray from the womb. That is, when he said he did not sell his plot to Yaakov. Their venom is like that of a snake, when he came in angrily and tried to prevent the burial. And then it says, a deaf viper that stops its ears up. That is Chushim ben Dan. So it does not hear the voice of whisperers, the sharp discussion of the group, to know why they were sending Naphtali. And then through him it says in verse 6, his teeth were smashed, that is, Asab's. The Marsha deftly reads the whole story back into the psalm that was quoted at its conclusion. The Talmud, he explains, abbreviated all this with just a hint, Kitzer Beremez, by bringing the one verse at the end. We were meant to go back to the psalm and see how it provides the structure for the Chushim ben Dan narrative. There we find, in its fifth verse, the word cheresh, death. Finally, we're beginning to see the word chain of connections between Dan's family and deafness. One final connection. If the Talmud was speaking in abbreviated, hinting language, why not quote just the verse with the word deaf in it? Why instead was our reference to the verse that began, Yismach Tzadik, the righteous will rejoice? One final connection. If the Talmud was speaking in abbreviated, hinting language, why not quote just the verse with the word deaf in it? Why instead was our reference to the verse that began, Ismach Tzadik, the righteous will rejoice? Take a look at the letters in that first quoted Hebrew word, Ismach, will rejoice. It's yet another name jumble, for these are all the same letters as in the name of our friend, Chushim. I've always been dazzled by the linguistic creativity and virtuosity in the interpretive technique of the Talmud and Midrash. I think I was well primed for it by sign language. From my parents, I learned that language was multidimensional, that meaning could move in physical space through moving hands. From our rabbis, I learned that letters could also fly through the air, that words could jump across texts, that the Torah could communicate with every form of expression available to the human mind. Thanks for listening. I wanted to let you know that I'm teaching an online Parsha class every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, in partnership with Ikar. Uh, we'll take a deeper dive into some aspect of the material we covered in this Dvar Torah. So if you love these podcasts, it's a great way to keep the conversation going. Sign up for free at hadar.org forward slash west. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. 
Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you. Thank you.